Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I'm recording this on the very first day of the Joe Biden era. <sighs> that was a very long four plus years. Good job hanging in there, everyone. Okay, we've got two very different topics on this episode. First, we're going to do some speculative interviewing. Kicked off by a story that surfaced last week about Apple maybe launching a subscription podcast service or some kind of tier of podcast that you pay for. I've done some asking around. I'm not entirely convinced that's what's going to happen. That's in large part because everyone I talk to that says they've talked to Apple has a very different story about Apple's intent and, and what their plan is. But for argument's sake, let's say Apple does try to get people to pay for podcasts. What would that look like? And how do you sell podcasts, which are traditionally offered for free? I asked Brian Alvarez for reasons I explained in our short chat. Brian runs uh, Figure Four Online and Wrestling Observer. And in short, he's doing it. Um, he's charging for podcasts and he's making a living doing it. So we'll have a quick chat with him. And then for the very last time, I asked Jay Rosen from NYU to come back and assess the way the press has handled the challenges of the Trump era. As is often the case when we talk about the Trump era and these conversations with Jay, it's, it's not super positive. But Jay makes good, incisive points, and he's well worth listening to. And we'll find a way to bring him back another time, and we won't talk about Donald Trump, and it'll be delightful. Okay, let's check in with Brian Alvarez from Figure Four Online. Talking to Brian Alvarez. Hi, Brian. Hey, how you doing? Good. Why don't you tell my audience what you do for a living? Well, what I do for a living is podcasts all day, every day. I do, on average, two shows uh, basically Monday through Sunday, so seven days a week. Some days I do three. And over the last 15 years, I've done approximately 12,000 podcasts. And these aren't podcasts about anything. They're podcasts generally about... Professional wrestling. There we go. Uh, and so the, the titles of podcasts people might find would be... How do I find your stuff? What, 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 what do we call it? The easiest thing to do would be to go to wrestlingobserver.com because that's mm -hmm. where all of the audio shows come from. But there's Wrestling Observer Radio, Wrestling Observer Live, Brian and Vinny Show, Figure Four Daily. And over the last couple of years, we've started putting the podcast up for YouTube subscribers as well. So you can find it on YouTube. So the reason I'm sort of slow walking into this is last week there was news out that, that Apple is mulling some sort of paid podcast subscription service. And I do what I often do, which is get on Twitter and type start typing my thoughts out loud. And uh, the one that, that, that caught people's attention was I was sort of wondering how big the uh, the uh, market for pay podcasting would, would be. And I said, but beyond Patreons for specific pods, to date there is zero market for paid pods. And then I got dragged by many of Brian's many fans uh, who said, I've been paying for Brian's stuff for a long time. You should have him on. So here we are. So Brian, the, the podcast you just listed, how many of them are, are like, what percent are, are, are free, what percent are paid, and, and how much people pay to access your wrestling podcast? So we charge $11.99 a month, and for that price, you get all of the new podcasts and the archive, the whole library of podcasts we've done dating back to 2005. So as far as free podcasts, I mean, we don't have any. We do a radio show uh, Monday through Friday, and there's another episode on Sunday. And the live show is free because it's on the radio, but the podcast of the show you have to pay for. So we basically don't offer any free podcasts. Every month or so, I'll, I'll put one out for free just so people can hear it if they want to see what they're missing if they don't subscribe. 
we do clips on YouTube. So a full show is like an hour or whatever. So we'll put up like a five minute clip. And then at the end, there's an ad. If you want the whole show, you've got to sign up for YouTube or the main podcast site. But we're not really giving anything away for free. And there's newsletters as well. Is that all sort of in one one uh, one subscription package or, or are they sold separately from the podcast? So it's a little complicated right now, but if you want the audio podcasts, then uh-huh. you can also get a newsletter on the website, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. For YouTube, it's just, it's all only the podcast. If you sign up, you're only going to get the video shows. So you've got a super specific fan base. Um, can you give me a sense of how big that fan base is, how many subs you have? We've actually never revealed that, but I I will at least say that when we started, I mean, I was dirt poor. And today we've got multiple people that are making full-time livings. We've got multiple people that are making part-time livings. So it's very big now. You're running a a small business in which you are able to pay your salary and that of other people selling paid podcasts. So that's that's some indication that that things are going well. Was the thought always that these things were going to be paid or... or uh, where at some at some point did you try offering these things for free and surviving on advertising? Well, the the very simple story is I used to only do a newsletter, a print newsletter that went out in the mail. And I'd also been doing a radio show with Dave Meltzer, Wrestling Observer Live, that was on the radio. So around 2005, I mean, print newsletters, the cost of postage, I mean, it was just dying. And so my brother-in-law said to me, why don't you just put this stuff on a website? And I said, okay, that's fine. So we actually started a subscription website where if you paid, you could get the newsletter. So I would save on the costs of mailing them out. So then he said, you know, you could do a podcast in addition to these newsletters. I had no idea what a podcast was. Mm-hmm. There was like no such thing at the time. So I was like, well, whatever it is, like if I just have to talk and talk about wrestling and then people pay for it, like I'm all for it. So we basically recorded these audio bits And if you were a subscriber, you could download it. And so then he discovered, you know, there's this thing Apple's doing called podcasts. They've got this Apple podcast app. And so once a week, we would put one of the shows on Apple podcasts for free. And we would say, if you like this show, head to wrestlingobserver.com, sign up, and you can get all of these podcasts. And that's where the whole ball started rolling. So it sort of sounds like you started with a community slash fan club, it sort of added podcasts into that, and now it's become sort of a podcast-first business. Am I summing that up correctly? Absolutely. So the reason I'm having you on, in addition to sort of me eating a little bit of crow here, is there's been this debate for a while about whether there will be a significant paid market for for podcasts. Luminary has tried it. It hasn't, their version hasn't worked. We're not exactly sure what the Apple version is, and there may be more than one Apple version from what I can tell. But but if you're thinking about sort of creating a podcast that you want people to pay for, what should you be thinking about? How do you convince someone to pay for something that generally they're getting for free somewhere else or can get for free somewhere else? Well, I mean, when you say that somebody can get a podcast free from somewhere else, they absolutely can. I mean, you can get a million free podcasts right now. And there's a lots of, but specifically, there's a lot of wrestling. Sure, there's wrestling, free, right? Yeah. So, so the key really is that you personally need to create a podcast that people want to see. It's it to me it's just basic business. Mm-hmm. Like if you like there's a million restaurants. You decide that you want to open a restaurant. What's different about your restaurant? You know, people can make food for free at home. So, you've got to have something special at your restaurant, whatever it might be, where people decide that they want to support you. 
So yeah, there's a million places that people could go for a free podcast, but it would not be, and, and this is not like an ego thing. I'm just saying like, it's not my podcast. It's not Dave Meltzer's podcast. So if people want our podcast, they have to pay for it. So every day I have to find some way to continue making this podcast something that people feel is valuable enough to pay for. So I've always looked at it as it's more like I'm running a business here than I'm running a paid podcast because clearly there are paid podcasts. So obviously there's going to be millions of people that start a podcast and nobody's going to want to pay for it. There are going to be certain people. I mean, the way I kind of look at it, when you look at like when Howard Stern went to satellite radio, right? when Joe Rogan went to uh, Spotify or whatever it was, I mean, you're basically going to, they're basically converting to a paid podcast if you want to look at it that way. Right. In that case, they're taking a very, very large audience that's been taking them for free and converting a slice of them. That part makes sense yes. to me. Um, but in your case, you're doing something different. I'm wondering, as you've seen the podcasting business grow considerably, it's still quite small overall compared to other media, uh, and the dominant form has been free. Have you ever thought, man, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should have an ad-supported component here. Maybe I should have a free component here. Maybe I could reach a lot more people. I could still have the pay podcast for my hardcore fans. Maybe there's a way to do both. No, because it's been so successful the way that we've been doing it. And it's continued to grow year over year. We, we kind of do that model with YouTube because we put out longer clips on YouTube that are free, which because of YouTube, they are ad supported. So now we're generating revenue every year from YouTube, but we also have the paid component to YouTube. So basically we've got the option of, you know, there's a lot of people, I don't want to pay for it, but you know, I'll go up there and watch it every day. And so they go up there and watch it every day and we generate revenue throughout the year from people that just watch the free shows. And then of course, with the ad, some people are like, man, I really like that segment right there, and I'd like to hear the whole show, and so they pay for the entire show. So it's a combination of a free advertisement, but also a free advertisement that's generating revenue. And from people I know that do free podcasts, that they've, they've got an ad component to it, I mean, you can certainly do that, but the people that I know personally, I mean basically we're generating far more revenue not doing that. Mm -hmm. We also don't have to deal with the hassle of we got to get the advertisers, we got to get the advertisers to pay, we've got to continue finding new advertisers. It's a huge added hassle that right now we don't deal with because we're just doing the subscriber-supported model. Right, and there are, there's hassles with subscribers, right? There's got credit cards and processing fees and people lose their cards and get new ones and you've got you've to update the numbers and all of that. And then there's always going to be churn. Um, and you guys have cobbled this all together yourself, right? Without the aid of a platform. Would you consider moving this? I mean, we don't know the terms, but to an Apple, if they said, look, you've got a paid product, we can sell it for you uh, to a bigger audience, we'll take some kind of cut. What do you think? I mean, it would, it would fully depend on what the cut is. And if we felt that being on this Apple platform, they would like be giving us extra visibility. They would be putting it wherever. I mean, it, it's just like any business. I mean, would I do it? Well, I got to weigh the pros and the cons. Right now, you know, the way that we do it, because we have our own platform, if we're charging $11.99 per month, we're not giving a cut to anybody. So it's not like... Mm -hmm. For $11.99, we're getting $6 of it. And then the $6 there is how we have to divvy up paying everybody and everything. Right now, it's, you know, whatever the costs are to host it. 
and then the rest is is profit. YouTube, the reason that we're using YouTube is because of the visibility of YouTube with the free podcasts that we put up. I mean, they come up on the side, they send out notifications to people, but there is a cut. And the issue is because the file sizes are so big on video, it would be very difficult for us to create a platform where we're hosting the video right. and we're getting a larger cut. Right now, it's easier to use YouTube. If I were starting out now with podcasts, I mean, we built this infrastructure, the original one, in 2005. Today, I mean, maybe I would do a Patreon. Maybe today I would do Apple Podcasts. I'm not sure. It may be easier to start that way today than to try to build up this giant infrastructure and, you know, the, the, the ability to take, as you noted, like credit cards and PayPal and, you know, people's cards bound, blah, 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 blah. It might be easier today to use an Apple podcast or a Patreon or something like that. So last question for you, and you're guessing just like I am. Um, right now, the dominant form for podcasting is is, is free ad-supported stuff. Um, certainly in terms of number of podcasts, I would guess in terms of a total consumption. Um, I'd also guess in terms of total revenue that the dominant form is, is free. Do you think that that eventually flips over and the way that most people consume most of their podcasts, or at least most of the podcast money is generated, it's through some form of subscription? I would say no, because my feeling is that the vast majority of podcasts, there's not going to be a huge audience of people that want to pay for it. So I would think that, I would think that the very, very successful podcasts may move towards more of a subscription model, but I would think that the vast majority underneath are probably going to be better off doing free and ad-supported uh, Patreons, et cetera. It's just like when the newspaper started moving to the paywall model. And mm -hmm. the thing was like, oh my God, like no one's going to pay for the Seattle Times. It's behind a paywall. Like you, there's a million newspapers you can read for free. Why would you pay for it? Well, as you've seen over the last decade or so, more and more of these newspapers are going behind paywalls. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, a lot of local papers. And they're still doing it, which tells me that it's successful. If the New York Times went behind a paywall and nobody was paying for it, they would go back to a free model and find some other way to survive. Yeah, I think the big difference is there's the Times and the Journal and, and the Washington Post, and exactly. then there's everyone else. But, 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 they're the, but every, the, everyone, everyone else in, in, in local news and smaller is, is really struggling trying to convert an audience. And that's exactly what I'm saying. So for podcasts, I do believe that the big ones, the successful ones, the ones that have you know, a famous voice behind them, they, they probably could make more money with a subscription model, but a lot of the ones underneath, like your local papers, they are going to be better off with a free model, selling advertising, et cetera. Brian, I would say you're my first black belt guest. I, I think actually other folks, at least one other claims a black belt, but you're definitely the first uh, wrestling impresario I've had on. So delighted to have you. Thank you for educating about uh, paid podcasts. People can find you by Googling your name and figure four online and wrestling observer. Anything else you want to, you want to shout out while I've got you? That's pretty much it. I really appreciate you having me on the show. I did not send everybody after you when you made no, the Twitter. They came after me. They came later. after me. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, I saw Dave uh, piled on too, but uh, uh, nice to meet you online. Um, we'll figure out some way to meet in real life one day. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Brian for coming on. He's a good-spirited guy. Uh, we're going to hear from a fine sponsor that I'll probably be talking about. And then we're going to come back and talk with Jay Rosen from NYU. I'm here with Jay Rosen from NYU, esteemed professor of journalism, who's been coming on this show 
every year since uh, since the beginning of the Trump administration to talk about the way the press is grappling with the very unique problem of Donald J. Trump. Um, and every year we sort of start off by, by asking you for a grade, Jay. Um, these are unusual times, unusual circumstances. How do you think the American press has handled the Trump era? Well, I think where the problem of covering Trump has intersected with existing practice in the press, as, for example, with investigating his tax returns when he doesn't want to release his tax returns, the press has done pretty good. I would give it a B, B plus, sometimes even an A minus. But where covering Trump has required breaking from routine and inventing new practices, I would give the American press a, a C or a D, with the exception of the week or so after the election, I think something happened and we saw American journalists really fighting for democracy as they also reported the story of what Trump was trying to do in disputing the election. Uh, so I think that was a special kind of like interval there where a, a, a kind of breakthrough was was made. And then I would add everything involving the coverage of Jared and Ivanka is an F <laughs> in my group. Is, that was a, a total embarrassing failure from beginning to the end. And it, and it continued right up to the very end where a couple of days ago, Ivanka was said to be trying to mitigate the yeah. problems of the riot for uh, in some way, which was totally unspecified. Anyway, that that's a total bomb out. So I think you've been pretty consistent throughout the years. Um, and you and I both agree that the, the U.S. mainstream press has done a great job when it comes to flexing investigative muscles. Mm -hmm. um, great reporting from the Times and the Journal and the Post, in particular ProPublica. Um, I would argue that for a large swath of the population, they've done a very decent job of covering the Trump administration in general. There's lots of easily accessible reporting that gave you a pretty good idea of what was happening within the Trump administration. When we started off, we were very worried that he was going to freeze out the press and deny them access. And, and, and it turns out he couldn't shut up. He was always talking. Uh, and even when he wasn't officially talking, there weren't leaks coming out of the White House. There were geysers full of information. And, and we can argue about framing, but there was just a ton of information out there if you wanted to access it as you're, if you're sort of mainstream news consumer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think we, we, we heard and learned about what was going on in the Trump White House through the efforts of the Washington press. And so what you're talking about is, is something that, that a complaint we've been hearing from lots of people. Um, you often hear it on Twitter. Um, I don't mean to diminish it that way. It's, it's, it, I think it's talking about sort of framing of news and how you're engaging with um, you, you sort of you, you've got to you've got to the American press is used to doing. I'm going to ask the Republicans. I'm going to ask the Democrats. We're going to ask them for both their opinions. We'll meet somewhere in the middle. We've done our job. Mm -hmm. And if you do that with the Trump administration, you've done an even worse job of, of failing than you normally would because they don't exist on on any sort of plane of, of reality. Mm -hmm. So you can't go ask someone in the Trump administration what they think about something because they'll tell you something totally nonsensical or, or doesn't have anything to do with even what's happening in their administration. Um, am I summing up your complaint correctly? Um, well, no, I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, okay. I, I think the, the biggest challenge for 
the American press has been how to stand up for American democracy in a more vigorous way when it is under threat from the president of the United States, which is a situation that nobody in the Washington press ever thought they would be in. And I think it took way too long. But as I said earlier, at the very end, they learned how to do that. But it took too long because it involves breaking routines and coming up with new practices and sort of shrugging off old limitations. And that was really hard. Then there's a a related problem of what critics um, call normalization of Trump. I think that's an area where the journalists are totally baffled by that criticism. They don't accept it. They think it's silly. They make fun of it now. They're so sick of hearing it that they've kind of shut it out. But there's something to it. There's, and, I, and I think journalists could have been much more supple in understanding what people mean by normalization. Um, so that's something that we could talk about. But I, that's another part of, of my uh, critique. So those are the, those are two areas where I think uh, the press didn't do as good a job as it should have. And in the background of that is, a, is another fact. This is not something that I assign responsibility to journalists for, but you know there was a whole portion of the country that was not only not listening to journalism and journalists. Uh, but was in a way actively organized against them. And that was, you know, a, a huge part of the Trump years as well. Yeah. And, 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 you know, spoiler, that's, that's where I end up at the end of this, which is that I think you, know, you and I can debate how well the American mainstream American press did, but if a huge swath of the country is actively not listening to them, then we have problems that we can't fix with better reporting, better framing. But Absolutely. We'll get um, let's, yeah. let's, we, we, we can get to that discussion. Let's talk about what standing up for democracy means in the frame of sort of conventional mainstream press. What, what, what did you want them to do and, and what did they finally do in November that, that, that made you happy? Well, they, after the election, they finally realized if he succeeds at claiming this thing was stolen, the entire Amer- democracy could fall apart. And that we were much closer to like losing government by consent than anybody ever imagined. And therefore, they had to say in the most straightforward way, that is completely untrue. This argument has no validity. Um, He's simply trying to win where he lost. And and they became kind of not self-righteous, but righteous about defending American democracy. And I think that could have started to happen much earlier. Like, And it's not that they didn't write about these things, but I don't think that, that the sense of urgency came through. And so the, the way I tried to describe this in my writing was you can't keep from getting blown away by the Trump agenda until you have an agenda of your own and something to defend. Uh, and that's what I wanted to see happen earlier. And I finally did so it give again. Me, give me an example of what that would have liked prior to the attempted election overturning. Give, give me an example of the last four years where you'd want them to stand up and say, enough, or this is not so. 
in a way that they weren't. I think the the um, tracking the story of of the Republican Party becoming a counter majoritarian or anti voting party, um, uh, and the way that's been built into the structure of the Republican Party could have been a point of emphasis. Um, the way that making it more difficult to vote is uh, aligned with making it more difficult to understand what the party is really for uh, is is part of it. When the attacks in the post office uh, came, that was reported. But it, but again, that was a case where I thought journalists could should should sort of be in in a sense set against that. The, 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 it, it, there there was a crisis in American democracy building for a long time, and it took a long time to get the press to kind of like shift over into crisis mode, even though the signs were very clear. Uh, and they finally did, and that's good, but I, I felt that should have come much earlier, even though those stories were written about. Um, and I, I felt that they should uh, abandon the, the White House briefing from the beginning and, and, and switch over to outside-in Reporting rather than try and make something of this institution that they clearly that the Trump government had clearly broken on purpose and had turned that whole confrontation into a, a different purpose entirely, which was to display journalists as hate objects and whip up the base to reject everything that the press does. I felt that the that they should have actually gotten out of there uh, from the very beginning because it was clear how they were going to be used as props for Trump's hate campaign. So those are the kinds of things that I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've been having these yearly conversations, and it seems to me that even before November, you'd seen much of the press sort of headed that way. Um, you know, increasingly spending less time on the press conferences, increasingly giving less credence to whatever the spokesperson of the day was saying. Um, and and you and I would have liked to have seen that happen sooner. On the other hand, it's very difficult for them to break out of that mold. It is. Um, in, some way, in some ways, really, it, sh- it should take a constitutional near crisis that we just got through uh, for them to sort of really stake, to be as obstreperous and... and uh, to, to be as definitive as they were. I mean, I think there's value in their reticence to say, this is clearly wrong, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I could see that. Um, I would have liked it to come earlier. It did eventually come. And you're right, by the end, they were much more kind of immediately dismissive of even the attempts to put up, you know, a case for uh, what Trump was doing. And and by the end, the Trump government was also not trying very hard. I mean, Kayleigh Mackett, and there, and he was not actually really briefing the press at all. That it, it had basically yeah. dissolved away um, into nothing but um, hating on the journalists and evading uh, all questions, or not even taking questions in a lot of ways. Uh, so, yeah, the whole thing broke down over time. Um, and I, and I, I was even struck. Uh, I wish I'd pulled the headline. Um, I, you know, the day after the riot headline, and it said something like "incited by Trump." Yeah, you know, uh, it was the kind of thing that, that the Times would never have have put in a headline for for, for uh, at all. There's still an argument. Oh, they weren't incited. That you know, he didn't say go riot, and the, and the old Times would never have done that. Yeah, by the time the riot happened, they were speaking fairly directly. Yes. 
So I, I want to skip ahead because because I do want to get to the the, the what what do we do about this giant information desert that so many of our, our fellow Americans are in? But but you wrote something in November um, when they were in this phase where you, you were happy with what the press was doing, and your question was what happens post Trump, mm-hmm. and not what happens to the Trump bump, not what happens with subscriptions, and what happens to Sarah Cooper. But does the press sort of go back to the way things were? Mm-hmm. My gut is they do. Yeah. Um, okay. And you seems like you agree. With yes. That. I, I think that's the most likely uh, result by far. If they didn't, if they were to take a different mindset, but you were dealing with a Biden administration that is going to be flawed in many ways, but at least will be have some sort of tether to reality mm-hmm. um, and candor and 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 a sense of what shame it means, all those things that you sort of need to have an engagement with the real world. Um, what would that look like? What would a press who had learned lessons from the Trump era bring to a Biden administration? Well, I think... One thing is that um, the major line of conflict in Washington coverage would not be Biden and the Democrats versus McConnell and the Republicans, uh, but reality-based politics versus the other kind. (laughs) And, you know, the other kind begins with stop the steal and the whole big lie of a stolen election and the afterlife that that lie is going to have in American politics, which is why I recommended a couple of days ago that the first question you should ask a potential source or a potential guest on a, a Sunday talk show is who is the legitimate victor in the 2020 election? Because the people who don't think that Biden was really the winner are kind of like in a different universe than those who do. And that points to like a larger theme, which is I think the the press has to start to distinguish the anti-democratic parts of the political system from those people and institutions that are willing to play by the rules of a democracy. And so what I would be looking for is more emphasis on those divides uh, as opposed to treating this like it's going to be a normal Washington again with the normal sorts of conflicts that you have between parties who are scrambling for temporary political advantage. And I don't know if we're going to see that, but we might. Wait, wait, I want to stop you there. Because assuming that we we revert to some sort of business as usual version of Washington, which clearly a big segment of the of the Republican Party wants to do, right? Mitch McConnell is much more comfortable being in sort of the pre-Trump era than he was in the Trump era, even though he had a great run in the Trump era in terms of getting what he wanted across. But he knew that the election had not been stolen, but he wouldn't say so, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Kevin McCarthy, same thing. The whole, whole slew of sort of mainstream regular Republicans refused, would have failed your test uh, in the first few weeks of, of November, mm-hmm. even through December. But now the, now they'll pass it. They'll say Joe Biden is the president. Okay. Right? So do you let them back in, and then now you're just back into having conversations about uh, socialism and health care and tax cuts, and and it's it's where we were four years ago? Is there, or does that, I don't think that makes you happy. It seems well, like you want something else. First of all, there's going to be a lot of people who don't say that. Um, mm-hmm. There'll be a segment. And yes, there's going to be some who say, well, Joe Biden is president. 
But that's different than saying that he legitimately won the mm-hmm. election. So there'll be people who try to confuse those two things and try to pass one off as the other. But the Jim Jordans of the world aren't going to say Biden was a le- uh, legitimately elected president. I don't think they are. Um, and so the, so the question becomes, how do journalists handle that that faction? We don't know how large that faction is going to be. Predicting that it's going to be um, you know, a majority of Republicans are going to acknowledge and, that Biden is a legitimate winner and, and kind of go back to business as usual. I'm not sure about that. I, I think there's going to be huge conflicts within the Republican Party about that, and we'll see. But there still is going to be this larger conflict, I think, between those who are willing to contest for power and influence under the rules of a democracy and those who resort to this other kind of politics that Trump helped to to bring into the center of American life. And we'll see. I mean, but but that is to me the big question is is how they deal with the fragility of American democracy as something that they have to help with, you know, and we'll see. We started off the the Trump era talking about, you know, would he get rid of the White House briefings or would the White House press corps have to be moved to another building? Mm -hmm. Um, And we spent a bunch of time at the beginning wondering about sort of those, the sort of conventional trappings of of Washington reporting. Um, Do you think we keep those? Do you think we go back to White House briefings? Do do we stick with Sunday shows, which seem like a very weird way to to produce uh, news um, and, and, and discussion? I think there's going to be a massive pressure to restore all of those things and that um, the Biden government will want to do that. It already is. Tomorrow there's going to be a briefing, you know, uh, on the first day of the uh, Biden White House. Um, They are going to want to restore the status quo ante. Uh, I think journalists are going to want to do that as well. The Sunday shows want to do that as well. I'm interested in whether election denialists make it onto the Sunday shows. Mm-hmm. Like, should they? My view, no. Um, but you, there's a different logic that says, hey, he's still a player. If he's a player, we have to cover him, you know? Or he uh, represents the views of a third of the country, or yeah, whatever that number is. Right, as if Trump won the election is a view. Is that really a view? I don't think so, but it can. you can consider it that way, you know? Um, so th- those are the kinds of things that I'm going to be watching for. And- this kind of discussion we're having that we're having about a, a certain segment of of journalism and of people who consume journalism, right? Um, I'm hopefully it's a majority of the country, but we know, as we've been saying throughout this conversation, that a significant part of the population is no longer tethered to reality, and that no matter the discussion we're having is irrelevant to them. That mm-hmm. you could, you they, the press could do everything you want them to do, and it's not going to dissuade lots of people um, who are very susceptible to disinformation or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, what is to be done? Well, I think there are two different populations there, and we we need to separate them. One is the group of people, the hardcore people who kind of been sucked into this world of disinformation and believe all kinds of things that are completely untrue and have kind of started to build an, an identity for themselves around um, false claims and conspiracy theories. And, and they've sort of exited from the new system 
Uh, and as we say, we don't even have a, la- a logic, we don't have a language for this. You know, they live in a different reality, but that's a totally inadequate way of describing it. Not that I have a better one. Um, so there's those people. And then there's a, a, a larger group of people who, who are simply mistrustful of the mainstream media, um, to use a common phrase. And I think that the problems are, are different in addressing those two groups. For the first group, the hardcore people who sort of exited from the news system as a whole and instead rely on these kinds of political fictions and fantasies, um, I don't know what to do about that group. I I, I'm still trying to like understand them um, you have to report on them. That's one thing I do know. Uh, you know, you have you have to have reporters who are charged with understanding and and following that group and and like being in touch with where they're at. But for the for the other group, one of the uh, observations that James Fallows has, has routinely made is that when you talk to Americans about what's going on in their towns and cities and neighborhoods and schools and where they actually live. It's one kind of discourse. As soon as you shift that discourse to national politics, it completely breaks down and all the divisions that we've been struggling with immediately pop up. Um, So that's one part of the answer is that insofar as um, journalism can be restored at the local level and people can realize that journalists in, in their communities have an important role to play, we may be able to, to um, climb back out of this, not by changing what the national press is doing, but by rebuilding that relationship between local publics and local journalists. That's one place I would start. Another place I would start, and I may have talked about this on one of your podcasts before, is the old distinction that C. Wright Mills used to draw between issues on the one hand and troubles on the other. And his point was that, was that troubles are things that people are actively worried about in their daily lives, the things they talk about with their family over the kitchen table. Issues are what the political system uses to win elections and create coalitions. And you have a crisis in democracy when Troubles don't connect with issues, and issues don't speak to troubles. And while that's an abstraction and a principle that comes down to us from the 1950s, I think if journalists and journalism could get better at understanding troubles, they would have a a better chance of engaging people in issues, and that's even though that that's a very that's a very high level recommendation. I still think there's some truth there. You have brought that up in in, in the past, and it is abstract. And I think about it in things like you know who is the Trump voter, what motivates the Trump voter, and is it economic insecurity? This yeah, or that? but that and, hasn't and, been and, valuable. <laughs> but no, no, but, but and then oftentimes you end up with these things saying the Trump voter is upset about the culture war or losing their sense of of place in America, yeah. and. You know, I, I you could argue either way would be that that's an issue versus a trouble because there's it's in many ways it's demonstrably not true. If they believe it's true, then it is relevant, right? Yeah, um, and I I didn't really mean in the sense of let's try and get in touch with these Trump voters because um, some of them are so far as I said in mm-hmm. that first group that you can't do that. Um, yeah, yeah, but this but this is brings up one of the main lessons for me as as a writer 
and an attempted thinker in this area is um, many of the problems that we thought of or I thought of as information problems really are matters of political identity at this point. And that's one of the things I learned during the, the Trump years. And you just can't solve problems or issues of identity with better information. Like it doesn't, it doesn't connect. And I don't know how to solve that. I just know that that's a, that's like, um, it's, it's for me, it was one of the lessons that took me a long time to learn it, but I'm finally trying to learn it now. We have not discussed Facebook or Twitter, I think, this entire conversation. So let's do it now. Um, there's no longer any debate about whether these are media companies. More important, they're, they're conveying news mm. to a large segment of the population. Pew has a study that says 36% of people are getting news from social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and Facebook's the highest and all, all the way down to Tumblr. And well chronicled their their troubles and 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 anguish within the companies trying to figure out what they should or shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. Can you think of practical steps they can take to make the world a better place when it comes to journalism? Not really. I think Facebook in particular is so big at this point and so automated and is designed to be um, a machine for um, discovering the most um, engaging and, and outrage-inducing content. Um, and I think it's way beyond the stage of piecemeal reform or better practices. I don't see how Facebook changes in a way that could you know, bring us back from this brink that we're, we're at. I, I'm very pessimistic uh, about that. I mean, it could be broken up, maybe. Very smart regulation could help, but in order to get really good regulation, you have to have a competent and determined government, and we don't have anything like that right now. Um, so I don't have the answer to the platform problem. I I do know that part of that problem is that the platforms, especially Facebook, have grabbed hold of the primary relationship between the news system and the news user or consumer. And that's why when you land on most news sites these days, you immediately get an invitation to subscribe to our newsletter because they're desperate to reestablish some sort of direct bond between themselves and the news user and news consumer. Uh, And I think we're going to continue to see that, of course, because the relationship has mostly shifted to the platforms. Speaking of the direct relationship and the newsletters, this is the obligatory Substack question. Leaving aside sort of how well Substack's going to do and individual writers are going to do, what, one of the critiques people will make about the Substackization of media is you're, you're breaking people into smaller and smaller niches. There's less of a chance they're all going to receive the same news from the same source. What do you think of that critique? Certainly, that's something I worry about. Um, I worry about it with um, the high-priced newsletter that elites are turning to increasingly, like the information and um, Punchbowl now for the political class. Um, the, the very high price, $300, $400 a year, um, leaves a lot of people out. Um, but I think these developments, like the Substack uh, shift, um, are part of a a larger thing that's going on, which is 
in order to fix these enormous problems in in news that we talk about every year when we do this podcast, I think we're going to have to go back to rebuilding the entire relationship between journalists and publics that support them. And it really is going to have to start over in some way. And I see these newsletters as an example of that. Uh, It's starting over and building a, a supportive relationship between writers and readers journalists and, and and their public. Um, and all kinds of problems arrive with that, but um, that's, that's where things are headed. That's why for the last three years I've been studying membership models in news because I see membership as opposed to subscription as one of the places where this rebuilding of the relationship between journalists and their publics is happening. Yeah, and you wrote an essay about that, which I would send people to over at your Press Think blog. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't think the sub, the newsletter model is is a problem for the public. I see it as additive. I think it's beneficial for particular readers and particular uh, authors. I think it won't work for lots of people, and that that's fine too. Yeah. And, you know, the information is kind of, people who are getting the information are also getting the Wall Street Journal of Financial Times. They're already sort of in a stratosphere. I don't think anyone's being priced out there that wasn't already getting, that, that already wasn't priced out. Um, yeah, I don't see it as a as a huge, like, deficit or, or a yeah. huge, like, crisis in news. So this is another dour conversation. They, they tend to be. Um, you're a professor. You can't have your classes, uh, well, they don't come into class right now anyway. You're, you're Zooming with them, I'm assuming. Um, you can't give them a steady diet of, of, of negativity for a semester. What, what, do you, what are you saying to inspire them that might inspire us as we look forward to the rest of the, the new year? Uh, it's something like this. Um, the struggle to have government by consent, the whole era of uh, modern democracy is now at stake. In many ways, we're going backwards in political time. Um, we're, in a sense, uninventing the Enlightenment. <laughs> um, and... Wait, you were going to make this positive. Yeah, but all around the world, journalists are fighting for um, a place to inform their countrymen and women. And the fight for a free press now is, is global. It extends from the mature democracies to the Russias and Philippines and Thailands of the, of the world it, and it's, it's, in a way, it's all one fight. Uh, and many of my students come from countries other than the United States. And now they can see the struggles that they're having and the struggles journalists here are having as one struggle. And it is. And it, it's also a struggle for, for a business model that can sustain journalism. And it's a struggle with the state that wants to kind of take over and it's, and it's a struggle for, you know, freedom as well as democracy. So the good news is that the stakes are, are really high and all journalists around the world are kind of in, in the same position. Uh, and that's difficult, but it's also very inspiring for my students. 
I will take it. I'm, I will take any glimmer of good news I can get, any kind of inspiration I can get. Jay, it's been a pretty crappy four years, but I've enjoyed <laughs> our annual conversations. Those have been highlights. Thank and our you. audience likes them as Thank well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having I enjoyed having them with you. Okay, we'll find a, well, maybe, maybe a better frame to have a, a more positive conversation at some point in another life. Thanks, Jay. Be well. Thanks again to Jay Rosen and also to Brian Alvarez and to Joel Jelani for editing and producing this show. Joel had to do a lot of work on this one because we had some technical problems. Thank you, Joel. Thanks again to our sponsors. We bring this podcast to you for free, still free, still a free podcast for many years now. Um, and thanks most of all to you guys for listening, for writing in. Got some very nice notes from you around uh, the end of the year, so I appreciate that as well. Uh, this is Recode Media. We'll be back next week. <laughs>